0: This is an ABC podcast. That is what is exciting, that you can come into one space and see not not the world's works, but you see... Our world, yeah, Australia, world of Australia. And, and I thought that's pretty special.
1: The most important curatorial statement we're making with this whole Sydney Modern project is moving Yirrubana, our gallery for Indigenous art, from the basement of the existing building to the entrance level of the new building. The transformation is all about a sense of place.
2: It's not every day that one of our major cultural institutions changes its face. If you've ever visited the Art Gallery of New South Wales, you'll know it's a neoclassical classical building hewn from Sydney sandstone, the city's bedrock, with iron letters advertising the names of old masters, artists whose work the gallery doesn't necessarily own. But back in the day, I guess it was kind of aspirational. Well, the gallery's gone from that edifice, full of Eurocentric bluster, to a sweeping but somehow unobtrusive architectural statement about Australia's modernity, writ in limestone bricks, rammed earth and glass. Daniel Browning here with the Art Show and I'm on a tour of the Sydney Modern Project, the new building that almost doubles the gallery's exhibition space. The design by Japanese architecture firm Sana is based on a series of interlocking pavilions that tightly hug this corner of Gadigal land wedged between the Carl Expressway and the Botanic Gardens, overlooking the resplendent waters of Sydney Harbour. This is a building that from the outside doesn't show off, except for the unusual corrugated glass awning, covering a wide plaza that I bet skateboarders will love. Once inside, you discover the one big curatorial statement it does make is about the place of Indigenous culture in this reimagining of the story of Australian art. We'll rejoin the tour later in the show to hear more from the man who steered the Sydney Modern Project for the past decade, and some of the Indigenous artists who were the first to exhibit their work in the new building. But first, let's meet another artist from the Harbour City. Cressida Campbell is best known for beautiful scenes of domestic interiors and still life arrangements, achieved through an intriguing technique Kind of a cross between painting and printmaking. The Japanese ukiyo-e printmakers like Hokusai come to mind. The overall impression is a clarifying vista of subtle colours and harmonising shapes, where every form exists on its own, and everything is calm. Cressida Campbell is now the subject of a big solo show at the National Gallery of Australia. And it's about time. Hi, Cressida. Welcome to the art show. You've recently returned from a trip overseas, I think.
3: Yes. Hello, Daniel. Yes, I have. I went to a um, went to Thailand, Penang, and Singapore, which was very indulgent. But we, my husband and I, had been working really hard on this NGA show for quite a while, and I was. We were both wrecks. But I've been to Penang many times previously since 1985. In fact, before the bridge was built to Butterworth. I've always found it a fascinating place because it's a mixture of, as many people would know, of Chinese, Malays, Indians, Portuguese and the colonial, you know, the past from the colonial time. So there's some wonderful buildings there. Unfortunately, a lot of them were knocked down from when we first went. But there's also my one of I'm a bit of a hotel freak, I must say, i I never shop for clothes, but <laughs> I, I love being in a good hotel room. And there's an old hotel there called the Eastern and Oriental that some people may have visited. visited. It was start, built in the beginning by the same Armenian brothers who built um, raffles.
2: Now, that's where you first started collecting ceramics, I think, Penang was the place where where that that kind of passion was born.
3: Funnily enough, the first bowl we ever started collecting was, um, it's still my favourite bowl.
2: Sorry, the the, the things like the ceramics that you, the bowl that you were talking about, the things that you collect.
3: Yeah.
2: How do they they inspire an an arrangement, uh, something that you're going to paint? what's the process of, of is it something that you've you've thought about beforehand or you you find a corner and you put um, your bowls there and how does it, how does the the arrangement come together
3: um well it was a gradual thing i mean most of my work relies on It all relies on mood and composition and color and line I, I mean you could say that about a lot of painters but i suppose being a combination of painting and woodblock and so Naturally, a lot of these bowls. Are, some of them are patterned, and some of them are less patterned. But they've—they just—I like cropping, and um, they make interesting compositions. And so, and also, um, my sister Sally Campbell um, is a textile designer, and she goes to India a lot and brings back all sorts of fabrics. And I—I I use them in the pictures as well, often with sort of rather com. Different subjects like, you know, rotting fish and trout remains and stuff, but it all comes together with the colour. Yeah, I try and I don't like to make anything pretty. I I always like there to be a a bit of... uh, Seriously? Seriously?
2: What? Your work is so... uh, That's uh, that's not a word I would use, but I guess we could describe a, a lot of Cressida Campbell... As pretty. There's something about oh, the eye, it's the mood, it's the, there's something of the harmony. Well, harmony, I, harmony, me, I think of it's
3: harmony. It, for me, it's more like a Persian rug or a, I mean, you could call a Persian rug pretty or, or you know, the um, famous tapestries in France. Yeah, and, the Bayou
2: tapestries.
3: They're pretty. Yes. Mm-hmm. Or, I mean, a lot of Islamic art is absolutely beautiful. But on the other hand, I, I'm just as happy painting industrial, you know, I find industrial objects like tools of anything with good design, I find interesting. I had to do a speech last night at the NGA and I, they asked me to do a PowerPoint um, presentation and I had no idea what it was, but I realised there were lots of PowerPoints in my interiors. So <laughs> I started off the presentation with a giant Photograph of a PowerPoint.
2: You mean an electrical socket, like a socket?
3: Yes, (laughs) yes. Because often, because a lot of the things in my house are are old, you could assume that the person living in there was from the you know seventeen (laughs) hundreds. So I always always like linking a bit of electricity or something that shows that you actually you know the house in the twenty first century renovated in the two, early 2000s. But also the other thing is elec- electrical devices often make interesting compositions, like chords. Chords lead the eye away from the picture. And so it's all about keeping the eye moving.
2: You you wait until the eye is completely satisfied.
3: That's exactly right. And I'm so glad you say that because... A lot of people don't quite understand that. For me, I always like the eye to move around the picture. And I love a lot of Indigenous... I particularly like a lot of Indigenous art, old and new, and I collect a bit. In an interview,
2: I think once, you you quoted... um one of my favourite artists. Well, I've got so many. My producer's rolling her eyes, thinking, "Oh my god, that's she, he's a favourite as well." Uh, yeah. uh Degas, and he said, "Never paint anything. Uh, n- never paint anything you don't love." What about yes. that? Does that? Does that resonate with you?
3: It certainly does. I mean, Degas is, as you say, he really is an a knockout artist. It's funny because I think a lot of people associate him with his ballet. Ballet pictures, which, although they're absolute masterpieces, they are the prettiest ones. But I love his early portraits of families. Oh, mm, well, they're stunning, his, aren't they? And his horse pictures and some of his erotic pictures are incredible that are, would have been pretty outrageous at the time. But he was a. Um, it was funny because he came from a rich family, but I don't think he ever married and. Um, had children, but um, he obviously spent a bit of time in brothels, as a lot of French people did in those days, but um, probably still do now. But um, oh. uh, I read that his comment was, "Don't paint anything you don't love," and I couldn't agree with him more because even if you paint, even if you're drawing an electric fan or a flannel flower, or Whatever it is, he basically was saying you've, you've got to have, be fascinated in it to give it the energy that it, it deserves.
2: I, I, just, I was going to say, I think it's like cooking, you know. so people talk about cooking with love. Well, when you mm. paint something that you love, I think it's imbued, it can be imbued with a sense of that uh, in the way it looks to the viewer. Like, it, it, clearly, Cressida loves this thing because she's painted it in such a way.
3: Yeah, It's true. I mean, you've, and also you've really got to. I mean, Degas, if you look at his work, as you obviously have, he's a a master of uh, composition. And you've got to crop to get a great design. And that's where a lot of people, unfortunately, don't realise. And they have something pressing right. It looks like they've painted the thing to fit into the square. Whereas he, if you, as you know, would often have the dancer's leg going off or, you know, a bit like Manet, whereas... And sometimes when I finish a... I'm certainly not comparing myself to them, but when I finish a woodblock, I'll then place it on the floor because sometimes you just know there's just something not quite right and I'll get butcher's paper or litho paper and just move it around on the picture... And you'll f- you'll sometimes find that you can cut. That's it, and you can you can find the a better composition by doing that, a sharper or a, something with more impact.
2: You have what's been described, Cressida, as a bespoke technique. You carve a woodblock, uh, but you don't ink it up as you might uh, if you, if you were doing doing it traditionally. Uh, instead, you paint it with watercolor. Before printing it, yeah. just give us yeah. a sense of how you how 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 you develop this technique, uh, and, uh, and what you find so fascinating about
3: it. It's a strange technique. Everyone thinks they want to know this, and then they usually fall asleep listening. So you can no, no. I want to hear. Cut it. Well. In the 80s, or in the late 70s, when I started, when I went to East, what was known as East Sydney Tech, now the National Art School, they wanted everyone to paint like Suzanne, which of course no one could. Anyway, I'd always, as a kid, loved painting, and I always painted pretty much with tiny brushes, sable brushes, which I still paint with. In the second year, I decided to major in printmaking because at least they didn't tell you how to <laughs> know, on. do whatever you were doing. They just, they told you how to do a technique and you could do whatever you wanted with the technique and I wasn't very good at etching or, you know, they taught a bit of litho and etching and I liked the dry point but I'm really a colour person and so the, the then teacher called Leonard Makdovich suggested, there was an exhibition on at the time which was, an eye-opener because in those, this was about 79 and in those days Margaret Preston had sort of slightly drifted away from the public eye and it was all Margaret Preston's woodcuts and it was a huge eye-opener and everyone was loving them and and I t- was talking about them to Leonard Mactovich. I was only about 17 and he said, well, why don't you try um, getting a piece of plywood and drawing on it and carving just linear, the linear. It's a different method to Margaret Preston's, whose whose work was more like a stained glass window in the sense that there was, everything was Very sharply defined. And then she hand-coloured inside the black. Whereas this was, so I'd carve the line and then I'd paint it with watercolour, very, quite thickly, and then... And it was very simple at, at that stage, and they weren't big. And then we'd roll it. Then I'd spray it with water, put dampened, then Fabriano paper on it. And I, you have to put a lot of paint on, which is the good thing about that is the prints don't fade because the paint sort of sinks into the paper. Anyway, you roll it through the press, and in those days, the first print was too pale and then you rolled it through another one and it got darker because more paint kept on coming off the block. And they had a f- beautiful um, quality in color. and colour. Uh, and also, the first ones were often speckledy, which was actually really nice. But I don't, the trouble is, they are not quite enough paint came off. But it had that s- slightly, slight effect of to lose the tricks lithographs when it looked like he'd flicked a toothbrush of paint on on the poster so I went from that technique to not going through the etching press and I mean doing it all myself basically and printing at home after you've sprayed the block you keep on lifting up the paper by like half the block and spraying it more and then putting it down and and because the block's still sticky there's no registration problem but it can take about an hour and a half if it's a big block, and I mean you'd laugh because I've been doing it since 1985, and it's still not one print. You can never do it without being terrified of what the result is, because different colours come off at different co- times. Wow, it's like a never en- a never-ending experiment. Yeah. I wouldn't call it a pleasurable experience but no. <laughs> at the same time the bit I like the best is the painting really. In the beginning I did, I'd stupidly put, sort of have grand ideas that the additions had been 20 or 10 but then I'd realised that I got sick to death because you have to paint the block up entirely again each time and so you can imagine having the same conversation with someone just endlessly. I suppose it's what actors do on the stage but I hated it in the end and because I wanted to do new pictures and so in the end I preferred just doing the one print but what understandably people wouldn't realise is when you've done the print I then spend sometimes a month touching the print up because the line of the paper the unpainted line I prefer having the colours up against each other so I washed the line just so you you don't, you know, it gives you more impact. And then I exhibit the block, which I don't have to do nearly as much work on but I love the fresco-like, chalky quality of it. Some people prefer the prints and some people prefer the blocks. Funnily enough I think men prefer the blocks and women prefer the prints. Now let's go back a bit,
2: Cressida. Your father, Ross Campbell, was a journalist. He actually wrote a column about your family you're all given made-up names and who were you in that kind of comic strip world that your father created
3: uh I I was baby pip because you've got to understand that my older sister Sally who I'm still very I'm, I'm very close to she's 13 years older than me and then Patrick who tragically he was a scientist and he died recently he was 69 so he was four years younger than Sally, or three years younger. And then there was little Nell, who is the Rocky Horror Picture Show star, and she was three years younger. So when I was born, I was seven years younger than her. So they'd all left home pretty much when I was 11. So um, I had the advantage of being part of a family and having great, brother and sisters but uh, I was also in some ways like an an only child but dad was a brilliant scholar he studied first at Melbourne University and then won a Rhodes scholarship I know that's unfashionable now but that's what it was called (laughs) they still call them that (laughs) and uh, then he went to Oxford and was of all things taught by J.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis who everyone thinks is a wonderful thing, but they were, Tolkien was writing The Lord of the Rings and C.S. Lewis was writing The Witch and the Wardrobe and they couldn't have been more bored by teaching. So it wasn't really quite the right fit for Dad. Uh, Christina,
2: tell me about the influence of the Japanese ukiyo-e, printmaking technique. Yes,
3: well, I've always, even as a child, when I say child, probably about an eight-year-old, because I've always been interested in art. But I've always adored them. But I must say, the older the better for me. I, I like my probably my favourite, Tsutamaru, but Haranobu and Hokusai and I-C-E-I-S-I. And the draftsmanship is just extraordinary. I never think they're given enough credit And also the compositions are wonderful. And like what I was saying about the combination of flat and pattern. It's funny, though, it's not a a lot about colour. I love the simplicity of some of the colours. Now
2: just on that your your aesthetic seems to have a lot in common with shibumi and that kind of japanese aesthetic which finds beauty in very simple things is
3: that something that you encountered in japan um no not really i'd always loved i i won a little it's called believe it or not the silver jubilee scholarship that's why i first went to japan in 1985 um, and I I'd always loved Bukioi prints before then, I was only 25 but I'd always loved them I'd learned how to do it once in East Sydney Tech and they. I then went to a strange little school that was in a house in the posh part of Tokyo it was run by a national master or treasure a national treasure who was about 100 years old and his son had to be the teacher. Of course, the son was bored out of his head um, because he, it wasn't his favourite thing, but he, he taught us. There was only about four of us. I, I'd already started doing my own technique, and I realised it was, although I absolutely adore the, the best yuki oe, it wasn't for me, because as you probably realised, with yuki they they use a multiple number of woodblocks, and it was less about painting and more about uh, drawing and composition, drawing and and less about colour, but exquisite, or, uh, exquisitely coloured, all the same.
2: You've had some very sorrowful years: uh, the death of your husband uh, Peter in uh, two thousand and eleven, yeah. then your brother, who you alluded to earlier. There was a change in mood um. and light in your work. Ha- has that continued? I mean, the mood and the light,
3: uh, yeah, just it has different. A bit. I- I hope to <laughs> maybe go back to some more joyful uh, colour soon but um, uh, it's been interesting for a change. Just using a bit of observing light, and uh, I'm doing a picture in my studio at the moment. Um, it's at night time, but looking out through some louvers um, onto a re- rather dreary garage next door. But it's it's all the um, Boston ivy is coming off the wall and it's just, and the studio's reflected. It's quite interesting. I want to do some pictures. I, there's one picture in the show of lichen. I went to Cambodia three times, actually. I loved Angkor Wat so much and I took a photograph of some lichen and I know you shouldn't work from photographs, but I I based it on the colour Anyway, uh, I drew it and carved it from it. But um, I'm going to do, I want to do a series of lichen because I I love lichen and I love the subtle colours and apparently it shows that there's not as much pollution in the air if there's a lot of lichen. So the next show, I think I might go out, get out of the more moody interiors and get into a bit of lichen and some, some pools You
2: also um, had uh, some troubles with your health. Uh, You you were Uh, were diagnosed with a one in in a million condition. Doctors detected an abscess in your brain. Thankfully, you're well again. But has that had had a big impact uh, on you and the way you work?
3: Um, Well, thank God, even though I was paralyzed, it came on very fast. Actually, it was my husband proposed to me. He, he, I might say, Warren Mackress, who's a brilliant printer and photographer, he proposed to me on a cliff like a Caspar David Friedrich near the Three Sisters a week before the, as, the abscess appeared. I told him he could take the proposal back because at that stage it was all looking <laughs> very grim. But, um, He very gracefully said no. In the beginning, they thought it was a mild stroke, but the whole side of my body got paralysed and it was my right side, which I write with. The abscess grew from the size of an olive to a lemon in about seven days. So I had to have two brain operations and all I can say is um, there were three teams working on me, a wonderful neurologist called Dr Tish, who I still see, a wonderful brain female brain surgeon who looked about thirty who was pregnant, and uh, her great team from Sri Lanka, and also the what they call the bug people who try and work out what the infection was, and they could never find out. But it's it's uh, unfortunately it's left me with it's epilepsy, but it, if I have a, any seizure, it's on I'm awake. But it means I've virtually had to give up alcohol, which, coming from being quite a heavy drinker, has been, you know, boring. But um, important, but boring, as they'd say. I'm incredibly lucky that I they, it, I'm not paralysed, and also it has made no effect on my painting arm, and it's virtually left me unaffected. So, it's amazing, but. Um, it was a huge experience to go through and I'm now on a lot of medication which is, um, you know, could have been a lot worse, let's put it that Absolutely, way. Absolutely, yeah.
2: Look, Cressida, um, lovely to talk to you and uh, and congratulations to on, on, to you. on this survey of your work and creating what you create oh is special.
3: And I'm, I must say it's as as nice hearing your voice. Down a microphone, I think it's even better than not listening on the radio while I'm painting a piece of lichen.
2: Cressida Campbell and her exhibition, also called Cressida Campbell, is on at the National Gallery of Australia in Canberra until February the nineteenth. This is the Art Show. I'm Daniel Browning. Now let's make our way back to the Art Gallery of New South Wales and rejoin the tour of the Sydney Modern Project. A new building adjoining the old sandstone edifice built in the late 19th and early 20th century. What I particularly love about the new building, some have characterised as a problem. And that's how in the in-between spaces, the entrances and vestibules leading to the major galleries, the walls are pretty much empty, like breathing spaces where your eye can rest.
1: Okay, um, welcome to uh, low level one.
2: Michael Brand is the gallery's director. And he's spent his 10 years at the helm steering what's been an unwieldy and at times chaotic project
1: that's cost the New South Wales taxpayer $240 million. It's it's, it's been a huge team effort, as you can imagine. It's a public art museum. We have our staff, we have our trustees, we have government officials, architects, builders. It's, it's It's an amazing piece of human activity, actually, when you think that we all get together and we think Sydney needs an even better art museum and everyone somehow gets together and from all these different angles and in the end somehow this miracle happens and we have this amazingly beautiful new building opening to the public on Saturday, open free of charge.
2: I mean, it's extraordinary to watch because cultural institutions like the Outgate of New South Wales, these venerable old institutions, um, projected some kind of values uh, in their day and we we, we see in the old edifice a certain kind of Eurocentric kind of grandiloquent um, kind of self-delusion. This building is completely different. Um, you were talking about the spot where we are sat here now. Is there has a view? There is a view, a view to country,
1: and there's three elements of country. Yeah, we're sitting here in the Urbana Gallery. One of Perhaps the most, you know, absolutely, the most important curatorial statement we're making with this whole Sydney Modern Project um, transformation is moving Yerubana, a gallery for Indigenous art, from the basement of the existing building to the entrance level of the new building. But the whole new building and the transformation is all about a sense of place, that an art gallery in Sydney has got to exude and reflect a sense of place. It's in Sydney, what is Sydney, the history of Sydney? And of course, you have to start at the beginning, and that is Indigenous country. And we recognise that, and throughout this window, as you say, we look out and we see country, we see land, we see waters, we see sky, we'll see stars at night. And that is a very important part of what we're doing. But it's not as though all the Indigenous art is put in Yerubana. There's an Indigenous voice throughout both buildings and throughout the landscape as well. And out the other window, you can see Jonathan Jones's commission starting to take shape. That'll be ready perhaps in the middle of next year. And that'll be this sort of symbolic recreation of country that will then um, symbolically refer to to indigenous knowledge, land management, and will be burnt every year in, in an example of cultural burning, cool burning, as a land management tool, very relevant at the moment. In Yerubana here, we it, it shows art from starting with New South Wales Indigenous art, very important not to go straight to Central Australia. Uh, Although we have... And where did you begin? Genevieve Greaves. Yeah, yeah, you begin with Genevieve Greaves' work, which is based on 19th century sort of, I suppose it's called ethnographic photographs. And then she's taken those back and she's interpreting them from an Indigenous perspective. But it's very important to show art from across Australia, including New South Wales Indigenous art, but also there's a range of emotions. It's not, you know, some it's very serious, some it's very spiritual, obviously, but some of it's funny, you know, and some of it's empathetic. The Hermansburg Potters, we commissioned them to paint um, some more pots for us. And they've painted the bushfires in Southeast Australia because they were worried about, they're worried about people down here and what we've, people have been going through. And there's, you know, some fireys rescuing a koala. I, I love that sort of stuff that we, we recognize also the, 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 the breadth of of the Indigenous community um, and their interests, their voices, and they also have a great sense of humour. mustn't be forgotten.
2: So 10 years, were there any, time, any times when you felt like, oh, God, this thing is just... It's driving me insane. I, I think I might just... Oh, need, God,
1: I, need, I need a holiday. From, from time to time. <laughs> <laughs> but it was complex. You know, you've got government involved, you've got planning people, you've got, you know, all these sort of things happening at the same time, changes of, you know, changes of minister, changes of premier, um, but you always know it's worthwhile doing. I mean, I think we all agree art museums are a major part of the urban you experience. Agree, yeah. But also when, when you achieve a project like this, you also realize how it is often against the odds that these great cultural things happen and so many people have to line up together. The economy has to line up. You can have all the best intentions of the world. You can have great politicians, great donors, but if the economy tanks, it's just not gonna happen. Yeah, these things are very fragile and everyone has to, to come together to do it. And they have in this case, which is one of those, it's a beautiful thing. Bottom line, how many millions did, we cost, uh, did it cost to build
2: this? I know, I know there were some benefactors who, who contributed and you know we have to
1: remember that these things wouldn't happen without benefactors. Well, the whole City Modern project is $344 million, $244 million from the state of New South Wales, and over $100 million from private benefactors. Now that whole cost includes work in the existing building. We've done a lot of, we want to make that building look its absolute best and get it back to the way it looked before. We built a new library and we've built a new children's art library, the first in the country. So it's actually a very good deal. When you look at other infrastructure projects and other even art museum projects. this is, it's a very beautiful building for that that price. And Sana, the um, Japanese,
2: uh, based architecture firm whose design won the tender. What can you say about their design? I mean, these, these guys have won what what's known as
1: architecture's Nobel Prize. We picked them through an international architecture competition and I had the honour of, of chairing that jury of, of seven people, including four architects. And their concept re-stood really out because it was a and it's interesting all the details have changed but the concept has remained beautiful this idea of p- interlocked pavilions that follow the natural topography they have not built a big monument a big gesture edifice there's no edifice. this is not an edifice, edifice. something, something edifice. very smooth about it a review in the Sydney one herald this morning by anthony burke from uts had a great headline it said this was not designed for, in- for instagram <laughs> and that's why it works so well so there's no facade to the building um they, they you know the architects have been saying it's, there's an openness, there's a lack of hierarchy. There's a sense of moving around the building gently. The in-between spaces are as important as the sort of the, the gallery space itself. You have, you have significant art experiences in the in-between spaces, but wherever you are, you see landscape, you see Sydney, Again, you know you're in Sydney looking at art. I think that's a really important thing. In, in one comment, uh, Nishizawa-san, one of the, the two lead architects, says how the building breathes. It breathes with the city, it breathes with the park, it breathes with the harbour. That's, I think, a very beautiful way of putting it. Now, we're looking here at this, uh, this kind of, I don't know, it's, a, it's an outdoor p- plaza. It's like there's some steps over, kind of like an amphitheatre. What happens out here? One of the features of SANA's architecture is, it, sort of, it really does, as they say, sort of touch the ground lightly. Very thin roofs, slender columns supporting the roofs. But this roof that you're looking at here, is really the, the one that links all these pavilions together. It's this, it's this winged, it's like a curved wing um, that, set, that settles over an atrium. Oh, yes. But on the top of it, you can actually walk down the outside. So there's actually two ways of moving through the building, down escalators, lifts and staircases, or you can go outside and then walk through a viewing terrace, through the steps terrace, and then down that set of stairs there, down to the dining terrace for outdoor dining overlooking the harbour. So that's, that's a very beautiful experience too, And this idea of Sydney really indoor-outdoor is a way to go. When the art gallery of New South Wales, the original building
2: uh, was the edifice, as I call it, the designers were trying to project a certain view. Well, people who, were, who, who, who bankrolled it too, a certain view of the colony. Mm-hmm. And we're looking at here at some very historic country, the Domain, you know, where people grazed their livestock in the early years of the colony. This place is saturated with history. Mm-hmm. And so kind of grappling with that... Uh, and your, your proposition that Yerubana be the first gallery that people see, I mean, there's a, there's also, there's a risk too. You know, sometimes when people foreground something, museum, museums and, and gallery directors, in some ways people read that as like, that's what they want me to They want me to engage. They want me to see something. I might just bypass that.
1: Yeah, well, I, I, our, our senior curator of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander art, Cara Pinchbeck and her team, I think have done a very beautiful job here. And one of the reasons is for this Yerubana gallery, which is sort of like a survey of in. I guess a very indigenous it's a art snapshot, practice. It's a, <laughs> it's a snapshot. But the theme she's used is based on a local Gadigal word, Burbangana, which means something like to extend your hand and raise somebody up. Yeah. So it's a sense of generosity. We're here to share experiences, to build links, to share stories. We're not here to lecture at you, to talk at you, and we'll do it through art. I think that's a, that's a pretty beautiful proposition. Mm-hmm. This must be the biggest thing you've done in your career. I mean, delivering a project of this scale. I've done some big things, but this is this is is to me the highlight of my career. Without, I mean, what what else could you ask for if you work in a field to do something like this with a whole team and and do something which will be here in Sydney forever, basically? Um, So it's hard work, huge team, but super gratifying to reach this point. Now we open to the public on Saturday, and we see people enjoying art thinking about things talking with each other hopefully and hopefully leaving leaving the campus a slightly different person michael brand the director
2: of the art gallery of new south wales yirubana is a word that the young cameregal woman patty gave to william dawes in the summer of 1790 1791. he wrote it all down to become a record of the language spoken around what is now coastal or inner sydney It's also the name of the dedicated Indigenous Gallery, established in 1994 and once housed in the basement of the old edifice. In the Sydney language it means this way. Apparently the entire precinct, or or campus as they call it, will have a name in the Sydney language, but the consultation process with traditional owner groups is still underway. Let's see what they come up with. Now let's meet two of the artists who are among the first to exhibit their work here in the newly reinvented Urbana. Pidinjara artist Illawanti Ken's work is a huge, glorious black and white ink painting about eagles. She's from the APY lands, a community called Arpita. Her interpreter is Linda Riv.
0: My name is Illawanti and I come from the bush and that's where I was born, in the bush. Uh, back then when there were no houses, no beds, no blankets, no anything. Uh, So I grew up um, with mum and dad and one sibling. And, um, you know, we lived in the bushway. And uh, later on, my mum and dad, they both passed away. And I had to grow up quick and take on the main role of being the hunter-gatherer for the family. So I've pretty much spent my life providing, uh, hunting and gathering... And I've been watching this all my life. And uh, that's really the basis of this painting, which is um, something I observed when I was younger and would be climbing trees. And I'd, I'd see these nests, big nests with eagles in them. And I'd go back down and I'd watch. And what I'd see would be this amazing ability of the adult eagles hunting and gathering just like people, you know, providing meat and food to raise their babies just like we humans were doing. So that's been very inspiring for me, and that is the basis of this painting.
2: This is a beautiful painting, Elawante. And these mother eagles, I think they have, they're mother eagles, they have lessons... To teach us about how to be good parents, you reckon? These mother eagles watching them, and they're telling us how to be better human beings and look after things.
0: Well, Yes, indeed. Um, we as uh, as humans, we're the same. We we want to be the best parents we could possibly be, and you know. And I've learnt a lot from the natural world, but I've So enjoyed observing eagles. You know, you can see them sometimes flying, but sometimes you see them sitting in a tree. And often what they're doing is they're just biding their time. Often they wait for the sun to start going down. And in the early evening, before it becomes night time, all the animals that are generally nocturnal start coming out. And maybe, you know, in that early evening, while there's still enough heat in the air, there's animals walking around meat animals walking around and that's when the eagle spies the one it's going to get so then when it's you know it knows which animal it's going to go for it's stalking this particular animal it will then take off it'll fly into the air and then it will all of a sudden it will just dive down and land right on top of its prey and it'll grab that animal before it even knows what's happened to it, grab it with its big claws and then it'll carry that meat animal into the nest to feed the babies. Mm.
2: Ilawanti's paintings aren't always necessarily of country. I mean, this is a a theme, a riff, almost like a story that you go back to, but a story that's from her heart and her, her observation rather than one that's been, you know, a dreaming story that she feels she obliged to paint this is something she chooses to paint and I love that that, that this is all in a sense a, a kind of a dreaming personal dreaming we don't use that term but I've, I've seen other artists do this too and say so that my life is also worth remarking upon this is more of a comment than anything else but I love that about this work when Ilawanti starts painting is the canvas white, or is it, is it is it like this, like we see, and then it's just black ink then onto the onto the white canvas?
0: Black, black, um, yes, so how I started ink, this yeah, painting, as you can see, it's a white background, really huge, two parts. Um, I started off with um, a bucket of black ink and a cloth, and I, I washed big strokes across various areas of the Maru. painting, and then I let it dry. Now after it dried, then I began applying white over the top of the black. And um, and that's all, they only used those two colors, Maru, black, and Piranpa, white. Yeah, didn't use any green, just used black and white. And Maru, two colors, so this is a new
2: gallery, this one, Yurubana. Urbana used to be down the bottom, in the basement. So now they're saying, you know, our culture is worth, our visual culture is worth celebrating. We want to put this forward as what Aboriginal people do here in this country, on their country, is important. It's part of our story, and we want people to see it. And how does that feel to, to know that this work is, is in, this co- in the collection and going to be seen by, you know, millions of people, probably?
0: And <laughs> I well yesterday when we came in to the gallery for the first time uh, at first I thought oh my goodness there are a lot of works in here. Maybe my work is, um, is just going to sort of disappear amongst hundreds of other paintings. But when we rounded the corner and I turned and faced my own painting, I had a really amazing surprise to see how huge it is. It's actually now stretched and framed and on the wall. When I saw it for the first time, I was very overawed almost um, by my own work. <laughs> And um, and also I was feeling really proud that it, it actually stood out and here it is holding its own ground really well amongst all these amazing works. The second part of that story is, of what Ilwanti was saying, is that, um, you know, it's really, really important when you when you look around and see so many works that this, this is employment and fabulous work for Arnangu. Aboriginal people Indigenous people and part of my life is teaching others to be artists themselves and so we go around a lot to the different communities and, you know, to teach to be artists and teach people creativity and how to, uh, you know, be creative, be artists, but also to earn money and make a living, but in a beautiful and creative way. And one of the things that I'm also teaching is um, is also to perhaps be aware of the use of colour. Like sometimes um, some paintings are just packed out with too many colours. Mm, and I sort of think that um, sometimes perhaps less is more, which is why I've stuck with only white and black in this painting. And you know, seeing paintings that have perhaps got less multicolours in them uh, is something that I'm a message I'm trying to give to other artists. You know, in on the lands is um, perhaps try and use less colours.
2: So how do we call them ones in Pirinjara, Walawuru, this, this these mother, mother eagles? This is a, do, do mother eagles have a different
0: name, Walawuru? Yeah. These birds are called Walawuru. Walawuru is the wedge-tailed eagle, and it's both uh, mother and father looking after the babies. Then the babies can be a boy and a girl, uh, often generally just two but um, that's what this Jukurpa is about. It's about Guala eagles. Yeah, look, I've got the confidence now to make these large paintings. Um, So, yeah, it it takes confidence, but it also takes stamina. I start work in the morning and I'll work right through lunch and and keep working right through, even past knock-off time. Sometimes I just can't stop. So yeah, I do I love doing this work. It's very satisfying for me and I'm really excited about it.
2: The wonderful Iluwanti Ken, interpreted by Linda Rive. Grace Lillian Lee was commissioned to make a suite of five wearable body sculptures. They're made from an intricate weaving technique that Grace learned from the Torres Strait artist, Uncle Ken Thayday. Their inclusion at Yerubana is an inspired decision on the part of curators Kara Pinchbeck and Erin Vink.
4: The collection I've titled Belonging. And for me, it's, I guess I've been doing this act of weaving for quite a few years now. And Uncle Ken was the one who has passed this on to me. And he's really encouraged me to keep, like, exploring what that looks like on the body. And I think I've been in this space of wanting to redefine uh, what wearable objects looks like, but also explore who I am. And I think because of my journey of learning about my cultural connection to the Torres Strait Islands and wanting to really celebrate that, I think I wanted to create these pieces that empowered me, but I also wanted people to look at them and feel empowered themselves. Um,
2: and this is a kind of a new context. I mean, you're you obviously clearly moving in this direction and the fine art world, if it's, if it's, if it's sort of at all separate from the fashion world, um, you're finding those connections, making these sculptures which are more like objects you know they just they have that power like they're like I said like a possum skin cloak how long does it take to make one of them one of these because these are quite unique
4: yeah it's hard to put a time on it um I've been developing the technique for a decade now so um and I've been creating these pieces for a decade but not these specific pieces um One woven necklace has 15 metres, and so what you're looking at here, we have hundreds and hundreds of metres. And
2: what's the material?
4: It's cotton. To do the whole series, I think it took me about 10 months, so it was quite a while, it's quite difficult during the COVID time of um, moving around and I didn't have a stable situation of where I was living. So, <laughs> yeah, the I'm really... Wherever
2: you went, they, these fellas had yes, to come. Yes,
4: they came with me. And you know what's funny when we talk about like ancestors? When I was making them, they actually felt like there was this presence with me and it was... At times, because as creatives, we just have to make when you're feeling, when you're feeling that it's right because it's this connection of like your heart and soul and body and mind. And when I was doing it, it just felt like someone was there. And it all, at times I just got lots of chills because <laughs> I wasn't too sure what that, what that actually meant. But um, yeah, I'm very proud that they're now home to the Yorubana Gallery and for them to be here.
2: And for you to be one of the artists commissioned to make work for Yerubana, I mean that's that's incredible.
4: I'm really excited about seeing it here as an artist and I'm really excited about wanting to explore my creative practice further. I just came back from Europe, Um, I attended Dutch Design Week, um, which was really exciting. Yeah, I also spoke at um, the London Museum of Design at the Sky Hub and Jean Sherman, has known me for a long time and she really encouraged me to focus on my my practice and so it's just a time in my career where I'm really interested in exploring that more you know I'm a huge fan of Nick Cave who makes the sound machines and activates spaces with telling really important issues as well but also I love the designer Iris van Herpen. And so I just love the opportunity to see where my practice could go if I were to mix all of what I have been doing for my community and what that would look like for me to do for myself.
2: These forms are human, right? You can see the echo of a human. Like they are, would literally, they're like armour. You would place them over the top of of the human and they have that human form. That's why it feels like we're in the presence of spirits, um, something human-like. Did you at any point or anyone model them? Were there any bodies inside these extraordinary wearable sculptures?
4: These specific ones, no. We didn't have the time and I was concerned about because of the time and the restrictions of travel I was concerned how we were going to do that. So no, they will never be worn. So they are truly just for some greater being that exists in them <laughs> and in these walls.
2: <laughs> and at the moment, it's, they're filled with air. I mean, they're suspended. I mean, I can't really even see the hanging system.
4: I know, it's incredible, it's, oh, isn't it's, it? It's,
2: it's <laughs> this magic, it's smoke and mirrors. So I can't see any suspension wires or anything like that. Um, it's just a mystery. If you, have you thought about, like, the future? Do you want these things to be seen in, in university collections or museum collections or the V&A? What's the dream?
4: The dream would be completely for people to see my work internationally. I'd just love the opportunity to activate the works in a space and create these experiences, but with my own narratives. I have, and I can't say who, but <laughs> have a collaboration coming up in the next year with quite a big brand um in fashion, fashion label yes <laughs> so that was a really exciting opportunity to um connect with them and for them to be interested in how I work and create and what was really interesting is that they weren't that interested in where it came from they're just interested in me as a creator and the works that I make versus the meaning behind it which I found was really quite odd but then I thought it was interesting the conversation around around that and what that means to me as well. Yeah, I guess I just want the I'd love the opportunity to focus more in on my practice and for that to be what, what that will look like, I'm not 100% sure. I do have this dream that I'd love to do an exhibition where then I have a more a capsule range that's accessible of a short run of pieces that people can actually wear.
2: Grace, uh, fantastic work, and uh, good luck with the collaboration with that unnamed anonymous fashion <laughs> label based somewhere in Europe. Thank you. <laughs> Grace Lillian Lee, and you can see her work and that of Illawante Ken, in the newly reopened Sydney Modern at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. That's it for this week. The Art Show is produced by Rosa Allen. thanks to sound engineer Matthew Crawford. Don't forget to follow us on the ABC Listen app. I'm Daniel Browning. I'll catch you next time here on The Art Show.
4: You've been listening to an ABC podcast.